Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. Today we're interviewing a very special guest, Gaurav Mangani, who is a staff software engineer at Google Research. Hello, Gaurav. Hey, Sean Martin. Welcome, Gaurav. To get started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us more about your team at Google and the work that you're focusing on? Sure. Thanks for the introduction. I work at Google Research. I've been here for the past about four years. And my team, what we do is we try to take all these giant machine learning models and try to see if we can optimize them. So these could be either on servers, like in the cloud, or it could also be running directly on your phones or your edge devices, like the smart speakers that you have in your homes and so on, or even like really tiny microprocessors and uh, DSPs that are like present in IoT devices and so on. Can you tell me how did you become interested in the field and what got you interested in tech in the first place? So what got me interested in tech, this is like about, I think, 20 years ago when I was back in uh, primary school and my school had this really nice computer lab where we learned this language called Logo. Basically, it involves this cute turtle that you had to move around with simple commands like forward, uh, reverse, back and left, right and so on. And you could draw really interesting shapes. So this was back in grade three and it was very interesting that you could do things like that with the computer. And uh, then as I uh, started growing up, we, we still had these computer labs, as we called them. We had like, you know, one uh, or two hours every week to spend there. And I would dig into like things that people uh, in higher grades were doing. So I used to get like really enamored by uh, the cooler stuff that they were doing, you know, drawing animations and, you know, graphics and so on. So I al al always wanted to like figure out what's going on there. Uh, I was never good at sports and all that, but like this was something that I, uh, you know, I really enjoyed. So, uh, you know, I could sit at the computer and do all this kind of stuff. So it really like, got me excited because I could command the computer to do whatever I wanted. And slowly I built from there and like uh, I'm here basically. But like this field, especially machine learning and machine learning on edge devices is interesting because it's an intersection of a lot of things that I care about. Machine learning, obviously, and then you have uh, a mobile, which is a mobile and edge devices, which is primarily the way a lot of people are going to experience tech revolution for the first time. A lot of people around the world might have never owned like a full-blown personal computer. They have directly leapfrogged their way to smartphones, especially in developing countries. You have like $50 phones and $100 phones, which are the first time these people are experiencing technology. So I really wanted to kind of contribute to that. And optimization is uh, something that I've been focusing on in the past. So optimizing machine learning to run on edge devices is something that really was the intersection of a lot of these fields I'm interested in. So, yeah. So, Gaurav, you went from a logo that a turtle that would draw on command to uh, on-device machine learning. That's a fascinating story. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey. And uh, I'm really grateful for, like, all the good teachers I've uh, encountered. So it's been the support and, like, encouragement and also, like, these opportunities, I realize I'm like very fortunate to be in places where tech is on the bleeding edge. So I'm really fortunate and I'm hoping to give back as much as possible through like uh, my papers or like a book that I'm writing and so on. So I hope to give back as much as I've learned back to the community. Gora, that's exciting. You're writing a book. Tell us more about that project. Yeah, thanks. So basically it's a book about efficient deep learning. So 
whatever we talked about like the, the field is quite vast you have a lot of research that's going on in this field people are trying to beat benchmarks continuously and there is some sort of race going on in terms of who gets like a better number on like this data set or that data set so there's always focus on, on those things but for the real world when we're deploying these models a lot of focus has to be spent on can we efficiently scale this for people who might not have like millions of dollars to train these models and not necessarily like the biggest beefiest machines to deploy these or this has to run on edge devices and so on so this is a very very broad field uh, there is not one silver bullet that we can use directly so this entire landscape spans things like compression techniques so if you have used things like uh, the winzip tool uh, gzip on linux and so on they have this thing called uh, lossless compression they take your data they compress it and they give you back the original data when you want it so we have things like this but we have uh, lesser restrictions because in models we can lose some quality if we can make the model 10 times smaller for like half a percent drop in accuracy that's great so we have technologies like that we have things where we can teach the models slightly better way like how to teach kids you don't teach a kid to uh, you know recognize 10000 different kinds of dogs you just show them okay this is a dog and they try to learn okay this is how it roughly looks like and so on so there are things like that there's also this concept of distillation where there's a bigger model which kind of instructs a smaller model okay you know what this looks like an apple but maybe i'm not so clear about the shape and so on so i can you know maybe maybe like this other thing i'm confusing it with so it can give like more information other than just saying this is an apple this is an orange so you have things like that and then you have uh, automation where you know you have algorithms which can automatically try rearranging the model to see okay you know what this fits in better here and this gets a better size with better accuracy than this other model that you had been trying so humans don't have to go around fiddle with plugging in all these lego blocks you have machines do it for you and finally there are other things like uh, efficient layers and models where people have gone back to the drawing board design something fundamental and uh, that that works out better so all of this i've tried to capture in a book and i'm at the beginning of this project i have about two chapters written so far i'm hoping that this will come out uh, later next year but again this is a, a distillation of all the work that i have done so far i'm hoping that people can read through it and experience what i have gone through and maybe that will give them a head start in, in this field sounds like a great learning opportunity we're looking forward to seeing the book do you have a title yet so it's called efficient deep learning Rav, could you tell us more about your work day to day? What does that look like? What's your day job like? Yeah, it's actually quite exciting. I like the fact that we have a lot of freedom in choosing projects. So, because we are a part of a research group, it is naturally geared towards research, towards building new things, not just purely implementing something that already exists. So, we try to figure out how we can improve something for impacted Google, and specifically in the field of efficient deep learning. So this involves interacting with groups like Google Cloud or YouTube or Ads or Google Translate wherever they have anything that needs to be optimized and from there on like it's a very open field i really appreciate the fact that we've been given so much independence that we can go and talk to these teams and figure out if there's something that they need help with so for example i've worked on this project with YouTube where we try to estimate what is the bandwidth of a user's connection so if you are let's say traveling in a national forest you don't have a great connection uh, most of the time so if you want to watch something on YouTube you don't want to want it to stream in HD quality because you will be buffering all the time but at the same time if you are on wifi 
you don't want the lowest quality you have a great connection so you want to see the the best possible quality so there's a very fine balance between that so that was one of the problems where we deployed a model which was close to like 25 kilobytes and to give you a benchmark the youtube logo on the app is about 100 kilobytes so we are one fourth the size of the youtube logo and we predict the bandwidth very accurately so that's one of the applications where uh, we worked on another application is with google cloud where we optimize some of their models so that it doesn't take so much space on the servers because the cost is directly passed on to the users so if we save money and resources for google cloud those savings go on in terms of making the the service cheaper for regular users so it spans like right from uh, these really extreme applications on smartphones and edge devices to all the way to like these large applications on google cloud where the financial viability of the service is dependent on us optimizing that so yeah it's somewhere in between these two extremes usually gorav you use the term edge devices could you tell us exactly what that means so that we're clear i have a very coarse definition of edge devices these are basically devices that anything smaller than a laptop or you know like smartphones or smart speakers or any of the automation devices sometimes you have like uh, i i recently saw this device where this was somebody who had one of their limbs amputated but they are they were a drummer so they had this like smart limb which they could use for like drumming uh, that had a few Oh, like a, a model running to some, I think somehow automated or something. So these are like a, a broad collection of devices that need not necessarily fit in a particular definition, but they're really small, tiny. They have a small footprint. They have very little compute. They have very little RAM. So uh, these could be smart watches or uh, really tiny sensors on your automatic vacuum cleaner, your Roomba devices, and so on. So I would think of it as a family of devices which do a lot of s- smart applications and smart tasks. that we had to manually do uh, they collect a lot of data they pass along a lot of data amongst them they could be like some sort of a smart sort of mesh of these devices that they can interact and take uh, actions together like you can think of drones as edge devices also when they when they communicate with with the base station and so on so yeah hopefully that that was uh, yeah that's very clear and uh, so the, the, these edge devices they um, don't have screens or keyboards so i understand there was This podcast, Humanitarian AI, interviewed Monica Lam uh, from Stanford, and she was saying that the future belongs to voice for that reason. Would you like to to comment on that? I think voice is a very big application. Just before this podcast, I asked my Google Home speaker to turn down the the thermostat automatically. I didn't know it could connect by itself, but I realized that I have a Nest thermostat and I have a Google Home speaker. so maybe there should be some connection i was delighted that there was it automatically figured out the two accounts are linked and it i know it's not like a big deal to like go to the thermostat and turn it off but like just the delight of being able to do so frees you up so i i truly believe like going beyond keyboards and mouse clicks a uh, voice is one of the modalities i strongly believe is the future but in reality i and like google itself and like a lot of the uh, a lot of large tech companies have invested in smart assistants back in 2019 there was this on device assistant on google uh, which was announced in google io which basically said you know usually assistants require some sort of communication with the server side uh, google home speakers they detect the wake word as they call it like the okay google that part is detected on the device directly and then the subsequent commands are sent back to the server but in this case the assistant was 
directly on the device where you can do a lot of commands without it having to go back to the server side. For example, open the camera or take a selfie or open the calendar or uh, set an alarm. So all these things don't require server side involvement. And these are like simpler commands. So I think that was a step forward. And I feel that not just voice, but a lot of the smartness will directly creep in through other modalities also, where these devices can detect things automatically. Some of this is already happening, like the thermostat example I shared, it can automatically detect like, you know, this is the temperature, this is roughly my pattern of setting the temperature is. So around noon and it's getting really hot in California, maybe just like start cooling the house at 11 a.m. or something. So I, I feel like we'll be definitely going away from like physical involvement and more towards like these devices trying to pick up as much of like other cues and voice is a big part of that. These edge devices, Gaurav, how do they communicate? How do they interact with each other? And how do you build a model to improve performance or optimize it? That's a great question. A lot of these complex cases, you naturally need like a strong backend model to kind of take over, as I say. So there's some sort of synchronization between these on the device and on the server side. In some cases, these can be independent, as I mentioned, where like if the tasks are simpler, then you can just do it on the device itself. But when it requires coordination, like uh, suppose you are asking the assistant to send an email to somebody, then it obviously requires an internet connection and it has to go through the server side. So from that standpoint, we try to keep the edge model as small as possible so that it can fit the constraints on the device. So for example, let's say I don't know off the top of my head what the constraint on the Google Home speaker is, but let's say like it's a it's a few megabytes or tens of megabytes at the most. Uh, and it has a really cheap CPU on board, so it can't do much beyond like simple commands. So we try to optimize the model that's living on the speaker as much as possible, such that it fits those tight constraints. And it has like some bandwidth to grow as well, because in future we'll make it even more complex and make it handle more commands. Uh, for the other case where you hand it off to the server side, that is slightly more well-known because we have been doing that in the conventional sense for a long time, that these complex models have lived on the server side. Typically, we have done a lot of smartness on the server side, so that's not so much of a problem. Uh, but still, even there, as these applications are growing and becoming more complex, like voice recognition, speech, speech recognition, and other tasks, in general are becoming more and more complex and we're starting to demand more out of them. So they are growing also. So you can think of it as optimization happening on both ends. The edge has different set of constraints and the server side has different set of constraints. So in edge, we would be like really, really focused on size. Like let's not go beyond a couple of megabytes. Uh, let's not make it take more than 80% of the RAM and let's make the latency you know, as little as possible within like this uh, notable time period that humans can recognize if it's like maybe 30 milliseconds or 40 milliseconds, we have to fit in that. But on the server side, we have more room there. We do have faster machines and beefier machines, but even then we have to be a little bit uh, cost sensitive that we can't just deploy anything there. Gora, that sounds really interesting because at the World Food Program, a big part of our work is the supply chain and we have vehicles and parcels of food that are distributed all over the world. We feed over 100 million people every uh, year. And you get a lot of data if you're able to, to track these parcels using RFID or sensors of some type. And uh, I can imagine a future where uh, inventories are uh, 
done through AI or dispatches done through AI rather than manually, which is what we do right now. Right. And I think a lot of this is already happening, not just through AI necessarily, but like in conventional optimization problems in general. I know of a few people uh, back in Amazon who work on deliveries where uh, they try to optimize uh, how the uh, you know how they pack these packages. I have a very like high level understanding, but uh, we are all already automating a lot of this stuff where they decide where to place these packages based on like how frequently they'll be required and all that. Like and the planning of like these deliveries itself is like already uh, automated. But yeah, I'm really excited about what we can do directly you know, closer to, to the action, not like sitting back in the office and planning all these things, but where like, you know, the, the last mile, so to speak. So if you can optimize stuff, like, you know, if we can uh, avoid food wastage, like things going bad and all that, if there are potential applications there, where, you know, you can take decisive action at that point without having to communicate back to the server side, because I'm guessing you must be transporting all, all these packages in locations where connectivity is bad and so on. So if, if there are applications like that, that would be tremendously useful, I feel. Right. So there are deliveries in places uh, with no connectivity, uh, with uh, 2G connectivity, and you can get all types of scenarios. And we, our systems need to operate in every single environment. And as you said, if um, automation or other techniques enable us to deliver faster, lose less, spend less, gain efficiencies, it's a win for everybody. Gaurav, could you explain to us what on-device machine learning looks like and what are the challenges that people commonly encounter? So, yeah, so on-device machine learning is actually interesting in the sense that we typically have been running these machine learning models. And just to give a quick overview for somebody who's new, like machine learning models will basically approximate a solution where like there is no real sort of the absolute answer for every single thing so let's say like if you're recognizing uh, images uh, you know differentiating between cats and dogs that's like the classical example a lot of people like in some cases might be confused by like an image which is slightly blurry so a human would can get confused there is it's not like you would get like 100 percent accuracy in all sort of problems so machine learning is a way to kind of encode that intelligence in a mathematical sort of format where it's very hard for somebody to describe the algorithm. And even if you can describe it, it might not scale. So in that dogs versus cat example, you can say, okay, sure. When you're looking at a dog, it has two ears. It's like fluffy. It has this rough shape, but it might not always scale. You can keep adding these sort of rules, but those rules will break because there will be some, some kind of dog or a cat which might not fit in those exact sort of rules. So for a computer to recognize all that it is very hard. So that's what I meant by like an approximate solution. So in deep learning is interesting because initially we were kind of in that zone where we were trying to extract features out of the inputs. Like it'll try to recognize shapes that dogs have this rough shape, cats have this rough shape, or an apple has this texture. And all of this was kind of encoded in a very explicit manner. Machine learning uh, and with deep learning specifically now, we have gone to a phase where we kind of learn this automatically. There is lesser human involvement. And that kind of really sped up the advancement of this field where humans are less and less involved and the algorithm itself is powerful enough that it can learn what is important and what is not. And because of this, now you suddenly have really smart applications which can do things that we could not. 
it has in fact beaten humans at a lot of tasks let's say like if you train somebody to do this uh, cats as a dog classification it's a simple binary like zero versus one uh, sort of task but still humans will fail in some point of time there would be some cats which you know at a certain angle might look like a dog and vice versa and now you move this problem to like a thousand class problem this data set called image it has thousand classes so for somebody to kind of really do well they have to be trained for like multiple hours and then they will still not perform so well so and computers are already beating humans at that field uh, for at that task so now when you have applications like this where computers are suddenly like very very uh, good at it now you want to kind of see if can i do this for other applications can i do it when i don't have like a really fast machine at my disposal can i do it on uh, my smartphone like uh, maybe like it's a very high end one and then you start kind of becoming a little bit more ambitious can i do it on like a old phone from like 2 years ago now can i do it on like a digital signal processor which is like a tiny tiny processor and attach it to like a smart robot or something so we are ca- continuously pushing these boundaries so we have moved from like only humans doing it to computers doing it like sloppily to computers doing like you know slightly better and better and better and now we are at a phase where we want this to be done on really small devices without any involvement of humans without any connectivity so that like it can uh, you know turn turn off your thermostat without having to go, you know walk 10 meters and uh, press that button but I, i think this is really exciting because it just uh, as humans we are ambitious if we stop being ambitious we I, I, you know we have never been in a situation where we have given up on a field so i, I think it's great that we are pushing this and on devices like the next step in terms of like pushing machine learning to the to the forefront uh, where it can be used in developing countries and like places where uh, it could not be used earlier that's a great answer and I, what i wanted to add was that 10 years ago i was a, a, an analyst at wfp and my job was doing surveys and we started using personal digital assistants perhaps around 2009 that uh, that time and they were brand new and having a, a pda in an office was actually a liability because people you know might lose them or they were high value so we weren't really comfortable going around with the pdas but everything has changed and over the years uh, we've seen these devices be rolled out to this point where pretty much every single monitor in the field has his or her device with them uh, as they do their questionnaires as they do their monitoring as they do uh, uh, their daily administrative tasks so what you're saying is really matching with what i've been seeing in the field and indeed it seems that the humanitarian community at large might be in a place where we might be able to leverage the tools you're telling us about today yeah you have devices like the raspberry pi and like i'm not even optimizing for like the smallest possible device or the cheapest possible device you can get a raspberry pi for 50 dollars and like a attached camera sensor for like maybe i think 30 40 dollars so within 100 dollars you can build like a full blown machine which is like kind of an overkill for a lot of these applications sometimes also you can go smaller you can uh, you know get this dsps and so on which are like really cheap so if there is interest in this area and if there are enough resources we can build like really really cheap kind of devices just suited for doing the exact task that you're doing and uh, you know pushing all these applications directly on these devices so i'm like really excited about the future with, with these devices and these algorithms so gorav you, you just told us about getting models to work on very basic devices but we know you work for Google research and are really interested in knowing what is the state of the art for you right so i think both 
uh, like the fortunate part is like so many people are, are excited about this field that there is a lot of progress almost like daily so there is this website called archive i'm sure like a lot of people are a bit, uh, familiar with it it's a preprint server where every day you have thousands of papers coming in and they're like volunteers so it started as a site where you could just post your research as soon as possible you don't have to wait for journals like 6 7 months to get the review process done because in this field you're moving so fast that in 6 months your research could be out of date it's like seriously out of date so what could be state of the art today is like potentially beaten by like five different methods in 6 months so i find that really exciting that there is so much work going on in so many different fields like sub fields of deep learning that it's really hard to be on top of every single thing so if one of my colleagues will mention have you read this paper about vision transformers which is a new way of doing image classification with an architecture that was designed originally for text processing i have to say which one because there's so many different variants that have pro- popped up in the last two months uh because whenever you publish something there are like five or six different research groups in the world who are reading these papers uh, drawing inspiration from from these works and building their own take on this thing optimizing some part that like the other person might not have thought about so it, in a way like it, it's really exciting that you're constantly kind of plugged in and like you get that adrenaline rush to uh, so to speak because if you are like really motivated about this problem having like thousands of people continuously hammering on different parts of it is like something that i have not seen any other field and that was kind of why i moved to this area it seems like a gold rush so to speak in the research not just like the hype part but just in the research because so many people are spending so much time on that so in different parts of this landscape we have seen so much progress uh, one area that i'm like pleasantly surprised with is self supervised learning i keep on mentioning this multiple times because it just seems magical that uh, just a few years back we always thought like humans have to be involved uh, to a greater degree but the point of machine learning is to take away humans as much as possible from from the loop so you have things like that where you kind of make your model smarter and more generalizable so to speak and without the involvement of humans so so that seems magical then you have things like compression techniques that i already mentioned about they have been really instrumental in getting the quality while making sure that we don't pay as much cost automation is great because you can let again machines do the fine tuning part so there was this recent paper uh, again by google research where they recently found out that earlier what we used to do was when we used to design these complex chips you have layouts of like where the transistors will go that was done by chip designers and they were optimizing certain constraints like power and so on uh, and they had to fit under those constraints but again if you look at it that is a problem of optimization again you have a certain objective that you are trying to achieve and you have certain constraints to meet that you know if we have this much area we have these many chips arrange them in a manner that it works and then it doesn't take more power than this baseline so you set the baseline to be like the baseline that humans achieved but now automation gets to take a stab at it there is an algorithm called reinforcement learning i'm sure like, like a lot of uh, really advanced listeners would would know about it more than i do where you assign some sort of a reward to the algorithm for achieving something which looks good so this could involve like playing games and so on where let's say if you kill like one of the monsters in a game you get a reward if you get killed you get a penalty and so on so in this case when you're designing chips 
you get a reward when you achieve the objective while meeting like the power constraints for example and they recently demonstrated that like they beat the human baseline significantly so i am really excited how things are going well in a lot of these related fields where people are discovering that a lot of problems are optimization problems that humans used to spend a lot of time in and we're just freeing up that time uh, i won't say we're taking away jobs from humans we are letting humans focus on other tasks where machines can't help so far so it's just like more human intelligence available for other harder problems i guess so so i'm really like fascinated by all this work right so you mentioned uh, self supervised learning compression automation uh let's hope that all of this is not obsolete by the time this podcast is posted <laughs> definitely this is brent listening in for folks that don't know i work behind the scenes to help produce our interviews Gaurav and Jean-Martin, maybe this would be a good time to talk about with the field of artificial intelligence advancing so fast, how the humanitarian community can keep pace and help contribute to advances. My um, answer to that is uh, we need to have spaces where both communities come together. I work for WFP and what we have is an innovation accelerator. It's based in Germany in Munich and that's a team that works on innovation and that works to make links and to bridge the agency the humanitarian world with research with uh, universities and what they do is organize uh, boot camps and sprints but also continuous dialogue and exchange between the two communities and i i think that's a good model to design something the best ideas are then piloted in the field and the best ones those that prove their worth are then scaled up in different countries so i think we happen to have a model that's really interesting at wfp with this innovation accelerator whose mission it, it is to link these disparate communities together and to get that process started can you also give an example of like uh, some of these prototypes that have been deployed we've done some work with blockchain for instance which was a bootcamp a few years ago we knew that blockchain existed it went to the accelerator in 2016 or 2017 but it was around that time a pilot was implemented in in Jordan in the refugee camp of um uh in Azraq and today we're very far from a pilot we were reaching more than 1 million people every month with payments on an ethereum blockchain that was designed in that way so and it it's taking place in uh these people are in five different countries so it's five different operations uh, it's scaled up in Jordan as well to different types of programs in Jordan we've got uh UN women uh, that's uh, on board as a partner they use the blockchain to become a uh, a piece of humanitarian infrastructure that's been developed in in this way so i mean it's it's one example and we have others too but the idea really is to work quite closely at the design stage and and the pilot stage with people like google research google research does support a project called sky at the accelerator and uh what that project does is uh, analyze imagery for uh, disaster assessments and uh we feed imagery from satellites or drones into sky and it spits out a uh, a map of damaged buildings within a few minutes and the uh, there are, i think five or six categories uh, of damage and that's really important for us because when there's something like a the blast in Beirut uh, we really need to know very quickly what parts of town are, are most affected what uh this sub districts might be affected so that we can get help on the way i feel like uh, for uh, places like uh, humanitarian ai and like all these applications like the on device 
part is like really critical yeah that i mean that's where we i mean both are interesting but for humanitarian you might be in a in a situation where there's no connectivity at all and uh or poor connectivity but you're in a hurry and ai i think people don't even think of ai in those settings right now because we will throw up our hands and say it's too complicated uh, so that might be a new frontier for us did you have any other ideas of potential applications for instance to give you an idea of what what data sets we have we have tons of food price data and the files aren't gigantic because it's usually uh, one day one price one commodity it's not like imagery data but that's one thing we we collect and play with a lot uh, we've got survey data from people who uh, have been affected or have received um, assistance the podcast we did with Brent earlier was about imagery that we can collect through uh, drones so we will send up a drone capture a, a few minutes of imagery uh, bring it back so it usually fits on a laptop so that's what we're interested in so what do you think about those data types or yeah this is very interesting actually i was talking to a friend yesterday about this mm-hmm. one application that i could think of immediately was i, I mean i'm not sure like if this is relevant was let's say if especially from the point of view of like not having connectivity so let's uh, tackle that part first let's say some of the volunteers are going into places where there's no connectivity and they want to diagnose like some medical conditions where like who needs medical attention and all that mm-hmm. so they're like these applications where you can detect like uh, skin diseases now using simple image classifiers or malnutrition i've seen yeah exactly so mm-hmm. so those kind of things maybe like they can take a picture and the the model can say you know what this looks uh, something similar to to this one particular condition i've identified uh, and maybe like this person needs like immediate medical attention so in the case that like internet is not there uh, you can uh, and maybe you do have let's say, like a landline phone or some sort of access to immediate like you know healthcare you can uh, notify people that's one application i was thinking of because like medical and all these things are you know uh, this is something that ai is already focusing on and this could be helpful when you have like urgent need of attention this is one thing second and there could be many such applications this is something that i could think of like off, off the top of my head yesterday when i was chatting with a friend but talking about these data sets that you have this is a very common problem that people don't have so much data that they can train models from scratch not everybody is going to collect like millions of data samples and not just that it's expensive to get them labeled it's not just like the time it's like human uh, involved to be there so from that point of view there is this another uh, area of efficiency called self supervised learning uh, it's kind of like how you teach a child a child is not shown like you know 100000 examples of the same thing it learns to recognize like okay this is a dog from 10 different angles the, you know the first time it sees a puppy like the puppy goes around it learns to recognize okay this is the tail this is the uh, head this is the eyes and so on it doesn't need to see like 10000 puppies but image classification models and all these ai models they do need to be taught that way but there's a new sort of paradigm where what we do is we try to teach a model to learn like generic representations of the world mm-hmm. so you give it something and then you hide a part of it and then you train it to figure out what that hidden part is or they, or you play games like jigsaw puzzles okay you know these are like four parts we organize it to figure out where these parts go so these models can learn like uh, basic concepts ab- about the world so that you don't need to do that with your own you know precious data which is very very hard to collect but rather what you do is you get these generic models trained off the shelf and then with as few as like you know maybe 10 samples per class you can you know fine tune it to a good accuracy so like the imagery data that you collected 
uh, need not be like you know hundred thousand images. It can possibly like you know even as small as like maybe hundred class hundred images or thousand images. Uh, but you use like a model which is pre-trained to learn like the generic representations. It's already a smart model. You just train it to like work better on your uh, um, problem. So that's that's really interesting, Gaurav. But you were talking at the start of the the talk today about the industry standard. So is self-supervised learning now a something that's mainstream? And um, and the, the difference is really so you you were talking about trade-offs. You don't get you don't lose that much in terms of accuracy. It's just that the, the requirement for training is is a lot lower. But that does it involve more computing power? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to see wh where it is. Is this a brand new emerging? Um, right. So uh, what happens is that like the the gold standard data set I talked about, ImageNet, is labeled. It's about a million images, a uh, thousand images per class, and there are like thousand classes, so about a million labeled examples. But so what we need to do is we need not just use that. We have tons of open web images that are available yeah. to everyone. And companies like Google, Facebook, they have like even more data, like Instagram images or, uh, you know, Google images itself is like a huge repository. So that part is like unbounded. Even for someone without any resources, you can just scrape the web for like random images and build something like that. But it it'll take some time to train that model. So what people have been doing is they have been pre, they call it pre-training. So you train the model to like learn these representations, build like some sort of understanding about the world and then use like the labeled example. So it's like more or less a combination of the two approaches. So you pre-train and then you fine tune. So you pre-train it to figure out, okay, where these pieces go and get like a genetic understanding. Then you fine tune. okay, this is my particular problem. Now learn to perform on this specific task. So you can be like a combination. And in your case, like it doesn't have to be that you have to pre-train. So what you can do is you can get like, pre-trained uh, checkpoints uh, or like pre-trained models uh, which somebody else has created so they have made this investment in one shot but it's useful for everyone else in the field so they don't need to do all this you know grunt work from the beginning right so in the humanitarian sector we're all expected to collaborate uh, it doesn't always happen easily because it, you know we might not know each other or we speak different languages but uh putting data into one place or assets which is a an AI algorithm that just makes a uh, intuitive sense to, well, considering the, the missions we have, but what you're describing here is sort of a way to democratize the use of artificial intelligence because you're making the data requirement a lot lower, but it's, um, I, I suppose what that means, and I'm just thinking aloud here, it means that, uh, we, we would have any technical team could basically develop their own, uh, model They're they're out there. You know, they want to detect um, malnutrition or sick children, but uh, you would actually, the risk you would have is you'd have five or six agencies doing it completely differently. That Sometimes that's a risk for us because we're expected to harmonize and have common approaches, but, but it, it really sounds to me like we're making a, a thousand flowers bloom. This is um, yeah, something we haven't been able to do before. So, And when you say on device, what kind of device are we talking about? Is it, is it my phone here or... Could you explain? Yeah. So when I, uh, and, and let me just like uh, finish the thought about like the, sure, the, sure. the self-supervision part there, like it's an emerging field. Like we are building on this idea and it's starting with like images first. So it could, and then it's also going to like, uh, like text, like just like regular text text, but like it's, it'll take some time to get to things like, you know, tabular data. So that's like slightly something that uh, we haven't tackled that well, but 
tabular data has like other algorithms uh, which have worked very well in the past it's these like sort of subjective data that has uh, you know trick people like images it's very hard to it, like figuring out algorithms for that like was like a lot of manual effort you uh, hand created a lot of like algorithms for that deep learning kind of like abstracted away things where we don't have to tinker around with like individual things where you detect noses and you know lips and hair and all that stuff you didn't have to do that manually anymore but like tabular data need not be like necessarily deep learning but other stuff like as i said malnutrition and all that stuff definitely and the way it is being democratized is that you have this one big model that somebody has trained for you spent like maybe uh, $1000 to train and now you spend like $10 to like just fine tune for your use case so if they're like competing agencies they they can collect their own data up, uh, you know in the field go back to the base upload it to the cloud and in maybe 30 minutes they get like the model back so next time they go to the field next day they have like the updated model so they reduce their work and they can keep fine tuning you know refining this model and so on and this cycle like how they can you know deploy it on their device so and by device i mean pretty much anything uh like any of these mobile phones or like you know any smart devices uh, it need not be like any specific device but naturally like with different devices you have different constraints the phone that you use would potentially be like uh, like one of the what we call like the on the higher end whereas like in developing countries like maybe like a 100 dollar phone or maybe a 50 dollar phone would be much less you know capable of running like very advanced things so we're coming up with like different technologies to make it run equally well on different devices but there's also like certain techniques to kind of tune the knob like if your phone can't run complicated things it can't run it so we just like tune down the capacity of the model and get slightly worse quality you know but like that's the you know mm-hmm. that's the best effort optimization okay yeah so like instead of let's say like 90% accuracy you might get 85% accuracy but it will run on like a $50 phone that we can do so but you have to account for the fact that uh, it's not as good as it can be i'd say something that could um that comes to mind is again the expectation in the humanitarian world of uh, transparency in the decisions we make so i will tell you that in a lot of situations you send people out with relief supplies and uh you know you hope it goes well especially in a very unsettled environment but having uh tools to structure the process and ai can can hopefully do that would um make people feel more comfortable that we're doing our job properly it, would, it could really help that person so i mean before being here in new york i was the, the director in congo and uh, my my team they were out uh, doing uh, assessments and distributions all day and uh, they had devices and i'm trying to think uh, how this can make our work easier and we had projects that were about well they involved dis- distributing uh, food or cash to, to refugees to, to people who were displaced by floods or by uh, by conflict uh, in congo and um so yeah they go back to a base with uh, with a vsat so there there was a connection it wasn't great i mean it was always there were always problems with it but we would hear from them regularly it supported email fine but i'm trying to think about how this could make uh, people's lives easier and certainly targeting people or identifying who needs or who doesn't need uh, help was a big one we we have a place where we would do recovery programs so we would help communities rebuild a well or a or fish ponds and uh, sort of having the the algorithm look at the image of the well or the fish pond that was uh, built or not built could be useful for us. So yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to to give you examples that that could help us. Yeah, what else? I mean, we had uh we count uh, stocks in schools and that was that would be done manually. I'm sure you could have a device uh, smartphone do that for you. Plus a lot of other things. So 
Um, the humanitarian settings I, I've worked in uh, usually have low capacity is a is a problem. So you, you might have someone really good sitting in uh, you know in Dakar or Johannesburg in the regional office who knows all about tech and uh, you know they can fix stuff and, and give you ideas. But in the country itself, especially if it's a smaller country, uh, you run up capacity constraints. So what I've seen happen time and again is that some tech is pushed out to a an operation and people don't know how to use it. And I'm wondering about the the types of profiles. So maybe if it's just handling uh, the AI on the device, you know, that's fine. But what about troubleshooting and supervising? What kind of expertise is needed? Because I mean, we don't have Silicon Valley engineers in places like Congo. So it's often a constraint. Uh, and and I, I had to have people come back to, to my office a few times after having introduced a new uh, Something very simple uh, on the surface, but then you know, training, working with people to, to really make sure it, it, the penny drops. But it's also the, the capacity in the office I worked in. We, we just didn't have the, the, the skill sets to, to manage, maintain, fine-tune things on our own. The good thing about this is like because there's so many applications, a lot of this work is being kind of incorporated like in uh, software development kits such that like it's barely any work to kind of like do the sort of boilerplate stuff. So a lot of things would be pretty much like uploading your data into the cloud and training a model, which kind of updates like this pre-trained model that I talked about, and then just generates like a asset for you to download and put it in your app. So yeah. from that point of view, it could be like maybe like a couple of people involved in like just getting this entire thing done, so but not so much that. It doesn't need to rely exclusively on, on people in country. So you could be sitting in, uh, in San Francisco, you check out what the guys in Congo did that earlier that day and, and everyone's happy. Yeah, as long as there's communication, it should be fine. There is nothing uh, location specific. And it actually in Google Cloud, you have uh, this auto ML on uh, device or auto ML edge. I forget the exact name. So by auto ML, it means like automatic machine learning. So there they have a lot of these tools where you can give them just data and they do like the necessary backend stuff required to give you like this magical model and you can specify, okay, I want this size, you know, I want the bigger size. These are tradeoffs I'm okay with. So they do all the magical stuff if you are not like, if you don't have the necessary resources. So, so that's the good part about ML is that like it's now at a stage where you can go as deep as you want or you can be as hands-off as you want. Because the field is progressing, it's progressing on all fronts. So people who are like really hands-on, they want to tinker with it like me, they would go like really deep and do things themselves because we like, you know, we can customize it for our use cases versus somebody who wants like the application done can focus on data, which is, I would say like the most important thing, like the model part we have democratized, but only you guys know what the right data is and nobody can do it better than what you can do. So you can focus on the data side and let the other people do the, you know, common foundational yeah, stuff. Yeah. Each is on. Yeah. 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 So Gaurav, I had another question for you. We know we have, you have resources at, at Google research, but I did want to ask, is there any support you need from the community? I think one thing that uh, usually comes up is to, and this need not be like uh, specific people, but in general, whenever uh, you are training machine learning models, just, be a little bit cognizant of aspects like fairness because we have seen these applications roll out to a lot of people but they might go out to certain minorities and like these might be especially relevant with 
the humanitarian AI work, uh, especially relevant to underrepresented people. So when we're collecting data, uh, let's just make sure that people who are typically underrepresented in data sets are represented fairly. And when we launch these applications, we make sure of that we are not hurting instead of helping people. So, so that's all that I would like to ask of people. Yeah. That's a really important ask. Gaurav, we also like to ask everyone to share something they'd love to see a futuristic AI application do. What would you like to see? Okay, my biggest pet peeve is renewing my driving license. <laughs> I don't want to go to the DMV. If an AI can do that for me, that would be amazing. On a more serious note, I would really appreciate an AI which is kind of invisible and takes care of a lot of these mundane tasks for me where I need not be involved. For example, like if I receive a bill in the email, it automatically takes care of it if I know it's okay. If it recognizes there's nothing uh, really odd in that bill, just pay, pay it off and don't get me involved. If I'm receiving spam, just like uh, spam uh, mail, just take care of it. Get my car license renewed, get my registration renewed, put my you know the thermostat to work whenever it should. Uh, like put my security system to, to use and all of that, like all like tiny, tiny bits that take up like, you know, 1% of my time, but like they add up to a lot. So all of that would be great. And maybe walk the dog. That's, uh, walk the dog. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much, Gaurav. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.